Hello and welcome to the Don't Hate Us podcast. I am Corey Stillman coming to you uh, just a few days after America has discovered none other than Joseph R. Biden will be our next president. This episode of the podcast will be dedicated only to politics. We'll all be going on political rants for at least the next three and a half hours. Does that sound cool with you guys? Of course. Yeah, that sounds pretty good to me. I was kind so of I'll, I'll get started. Longer. I'm just kidding, because no one, no one wants to hear that, especially from me. I don't think anybody wants to hear my thoughts on this election. But one thing I think we can all agree on about this election and pretty much every election in American history is that we have decided once again in the great American tradition between the lesser of two evils. How many times have we heard that phrase in relation to a presidential election? So in the spirit of that, tonight we'll be selecting our own lesser of two evils. Each of us has brought with us two films that we consider to be Pretty bad, if not outright terrible. And we will take turns revealing which we which of those two we think is our lesser of two evils. The rest of us, when that person's presenting, will guess which one we think they might say is the, their lesser of two, the two. And we'll go from there. But before we get into tonight's main segment, I, of course, want to hear some of what you guys watched in the last week. So I'll start with you, Samir. What have you watched in the past week? Anything noteworthy? It's It's been a pretty slow week. It's it it's been a pretty slow week. I think that I've seen oh, so the one movie I did watch was Fifty Fifty, which um which was good. I, I liked Great it. Movie. Yeah, it came out in like twenty eleven and it's just, you know, an uplifting movie about a guy that gets cancer. Yeah, you cannot enjoy that one. Guy that beats cancer and it's just it's great. Um, you know, nothing spectacular in it, nothing spectacular I have to say about it, but I think it's a great movie to watch on a rainy day, which I did. That's one of those movies that Tonight we're going to be talking, or at least I'm going to be talking about movies that I hate way more than other people hate. Um, 50-50 is a movie that I love way more than most people love. Like, I think it's one of my only 35 stars that I've ever given on Letterboxd. That movie um, was my favorite movie in high school until I watched Boyhood. Wow, so, that, that's yeah. pretty surprising. I mean, I'm pretty 50-50 on the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, dang. He was, uh-huh. he was waiting to say that. I got you like, on that one. <laughs> he was like... <laughs> oh, because Dane's feeling like a comedian tonight. How about we go on to you? <laughs> Dane, how, what, what have you watched in the last week? So, I watched a movie that actually was pretty funny at moments, but also very uh, weird, which was Bong Joon-ho's mother. Um... Equally as impressive as Parasite. Uh, that movie, I mean, Mother was, it's a trip. I don't want to say anything about it because it's a, there are so many twists and turns throughout the movie. I highly recommend everyone watch it. Uh, it it's a roller coaster ride, that's for sure. I'm, I'm a big fan of Mother. I was going to ask Demir real quick if, if you have seen it, only because uh, we talked about it a little bit before you, you joined the call in the beginning. Uh, but this is... A great, great movie. Definitely one of Bong Joon-ho's best. I haven't seen it, but you seen it, Samir? Yeah, no, okay. I haven't seen it, but I do want to watch it. It's on Hulu yeah. right now. It's on Hulu. It's fire. It's so good. Personal favorite is Memories of Murder, but Mother is right up there. It's 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 really 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 good. Uh, and and like Memories of Murder and like Parasite, it uh, constantly reinvents itself. It's just kind of what Bong Joon-ho does. He he turns one genre into five at the snap of the fingers. Not to be confused, by the way, with 
Mother of the Darren Aronofsky film. Have you guys seen that with Jennifer yeah, Lawrence and Ed Harris? I have seen it. Some people I, love it. I think it's dog shit. I don't think it's dog shit. I I like it, but I don't really like it. Um, that's all I'll say about that because I, mean, I think you're, that, you're a Black Swan fangirl, as is Samir. Yeah, well, I think a, a lot of his movies, like it just like kind of hurts on the rewatch. Um, but. I don't know. For for Mother, it's not a movie that you'd rewatch a lot because it's kind of gimmicky. But as you're watching it, I just kind of really enjoy the trip as we kind of started this tangent on. So, yeah. yeah, I guess if you're really on board with that gimmick, it's a good movie. But I just think that gimmick is very like hackneyed and yeah, that, um, just not worth movie. worth the ride. Sam, we'll go to you. Anything good you watched in the last week? Well, the best thing I have watched is this avant-garde wrestling match. And, you know, I am, I'm okay with making this a wrestling podcast if we want, because the, the wrestling match that I watched between The Fiend and John Cena at WrestleMania this year is truly one of the greatest pieces of art I have ever seen. I'm just going to leave God, it I really got to watch this. I'm, like, you will watch it? And be like, there is no way this aired on television. This is, it is off the fucking wall. And I cannot believe they did it. It's amazing. Movies that I watched. My therapist recommended that I watch Cinderella Man. Which is the Russell Crowe boxing movie. It's like, Ron Howard's like, those movies are just like, you can't say they're bad. Because they don't do anything wrong. But, dear God, nothing interesting happens. Like, it's just like. It really, like, everything you expect to happen, happens. And then you gonna, just kind of sit there, and you're like, uh. I'm going to bounce off you super quickly. Speaking of Ron Howard, the reviews are in for Hillbilly Elegy, and they are fucking terrible. Yeah, they're uh, saying it's awful. I don't know if you saw those, but I follow, like, the you, so you can follow lists on Twitter, and I follow the film critics one. And whenever something comes out, like, daily, it's the talk of the day. So yesterday, Hillbilly Elegy supposed to be god awful and that was supposed to be one of the most anticipated releases of this year on netflix we talked about that as as one of the oscar possible best picture oscar noms originally i mean people thought this might be fun of the the film that gets amy adams over the hump gets her an oscar if it's not an overall good film it probably won't do it for yeah the main criticism seems to be it's rich people wanting to pretend to be poor people but not really understanding how poor people's lives actually are so it's like uh, which is exactly, that's what the book was about. I mean, it yeah. it is a, a memoir, so it's grounded in this guy's life. But the author J.D. Vance went on to become incredibly wealthy and pretty much just like a a mainstay. I, I think in like corporate America, so he really is pretty disconnected from that life. And I think a lot of people found the book offensive for that reason. Um, I think I also just think, you know, speaking of politics and elections, in the year twenty twenty, we're sort of removed from effort to like humanize people in Appalachia it doesn't mean that their their um lives and their their um everyday concerns aren't important of course they are but I think there was like a phase in American politics where we were so obsessed with trying to understand this one demographic as if it'll solve all of our electorate issues and it just obviously that's that's not the case I mean look at this last election this last election was won and it was lost by black people really black people in in cities like like yeah, black women and, and you know, efforts in in Georgia from Stacey Abrams and in cities like Detroit and Philadelphia. So we're so obsessed with kind of like the, the like working class white person in like, you know, middle of nowhere America. And those concerns are valid, but 
as as we've learned, like you know, actual um, progressive politics are, are what appeals to people. I mean, not that doesn't necessarily mean this election, but I think progressives were the ones on the ground getting getting the work done. Like I referenced Stacey Abrams earlier. Um, yeah, so Corey's first hot take of the episode is fuck the Appalachians. So <laughs> yep. moving on, um, watch that. But mostly I've actually just been watching Twin Peaks, which I know I've been pestering you all about, but this third season is actually fucking amazing. And I have not felt this way about a TV show since I watched Breaking Bad. It is so fucking good. Yeah, everyone says that that final season is fantastic. I, I need to start it just for that alone. Um. Yeah, I finished the TV. I finished the Queen's Gambit, the miniseries on Netflix. Is that, that, watch that? I was gonna watch. I was yeah. gonna watch it. Hearing great things. Yeah, yeah it's that's... it's it's not groundbreaking. It's not like I watched and was like, oh my god, that was amazing. But I can definitely see why it's as popular as it is. It's a very watchable show. Like I haven't been so invested in a show in a long time. It's fast paced. It's a lot of fun. Um, Anya Taylor Joy is an amazing actress, and she's also like just gorgeous. So it's really easy to watch uh, as a thirst very watch, bad. if nothing else. Yeah, yeah, I love her in Thorbred. She's great in The Witch. So she, she's, but this is probably her most, um, like, energetic role. If that makes sense. Like, she's very reserved in those other two movies, and here she has, she's able to demonstrate a lot of range. So the show is really, really, really good. Uh, definitely recommend it. It's just like I'm been much more in a miniseries lately than than longer shows. I think they're just easier to digest and more kind of more worthy of the investment. So that's what I've been working on mostly in the in the last week. The only other movie I'll mention really quickly. Um, because I wanted to ask Samir if he'd seen it. Was um George Washington? Have you guys seen this movie? Yeah, yeah I've seen it. It's it's David Gordon yeah. Green. Um, it's one of it's actually his, I think it's his first feature length film. It is, uh, yeah. and it's gorgeous. I mean, I could I was just in shock that this film was by David Gordon Green. I mean, I have always liked this guy as a director, but I liked him as a director of you know Pineapple Express and uh, you know the Danny new McBride. Halloween reboot. Did Danny McBride's a producer of it too? So his name is attached to it too. That no, was... I didn't know Danny McBride was attached to George Washington. Yeah, wow. He's a so, I mean, obviously, I knew they were good buddies, and I, I just—they're always married in my mind. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know Danny McBride was attached to George Washington. It, so, is it about George Washington? No. So no, it, it's describe... a coming-of-age film set in the rural South, but it—it's it, connected in really interesting ways to American history, if that makes sense. It, to describe the vibe of this movie, I think the essence of this movie, I'll just say. Give her on like a summer day at like 5 p.m. Like when it's like super hot, but it's like a sleepy sunny where it's just how like people kind of just like they have these sunrooms where they sleep, where you're like coated in sunlight, but it just makes you sleepy. So it's like it's like right before it's about to turn night, but it's like super sunny, but it's like a dark tinted sun. That's this whole movie. It's just coated in that like golden hour, the whole movie. I think we need to start keeping a log of Samir's analogies. Yeah, Samir, I could I could kiss you. That was so beautiful. I mean, having seen the movie, that's that's very accurate too. That's yeah, really beautiful. I mean, I think the obvious director that it that it um, evokes is Terrence Malick. It feels very much like a yeah. Terrence Malick movie. Um, but um, it does something that a Terrence Malick, unfortunately, probably <laughs> has never done and will never do, which is focus on black people. So right. <laughs> that's pretty cool that David Gordon Green did that with George Washington. Um, and I, I, yeah, I think it's a really powerful, really, really beautiful movie. Not something I would have expected from a guy who I thought was mostly a director of comedies. Um, yeah. Any other last minute films that anybody wanted to, wanted to shout out before we get into the meat of tonight's episode? All right. It. So like we said at the beginning, tonight will be a battle of the lesser of two evils. 
just as America experienced in 2020, in 2016, 2012, 2008, 2004, shall I go on? Uh, this is starting to see a trend amongst American politics. That was course, three, I, I, four I, I, year counting by you. You were just going was that? by four. Yeah, it was pretty impressive counting from you. I was impressed. <laughs> you, you don't think you could have done the same? Probably not. I probably not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, let's be honest. Um, yeah, and I mean, I, I should say before we uh, get into it, in case anybody is listening and offended by this, like my emphasis on this lesser two evils thing is, uh, I think we all agree that the, the right person won this election. That it's not necessarily fair to boil both of them down, pretend that both Joe Biden and Donald Trump were the same candidate. Um, but there is obviously going to be said for the fact that these candidates. Um, neither will necessarily address some really significant um, material issues uh, on the ground for everyday Americans. Uh, I think that's kind of what we're getting at. We say lesser two evils. These are still, you know, people who are centrists, if not, you know, far right or centrist at, at best, you know, not necessarily, uh, you know, progressive champions looking to change really important issues in this country. But I just, want, I just wanted to, to clarify that uh, on behalf of the Don't Hate Us podcast. But anyway, uh, I explained the rules at the beginning. I'll go over them one more time. Each of us will be presenting two films, two films that we consider to be bad. That means that they could be broadly considered bad by the general public. They could be considered incredible by the general public, but we just happen to hate them. What we'll be doing is, between those two films, we'll then go around and everybody else will guess which one is your lesser two evils. Which one do you hate just a little bit less? Which one do you maybe even have a soft spot for more than you'd like to admit? We'll just sort of discuss those films and move on. So, does anybody want to start? Who wants to first present their lesser of two evils pair for tonight? You know, I would really like to go. Corey, because... Okay, let's hear it. I came from Not only bottom. do I feel very, very passionate um, about making Corey mad, um, but I also feel very passionate about making Samir happy. Um, so today, I'll be talking about two movies... Um, the first movie of my evils, as we call them, is, you know, I'm going to throw it on a switch and just change one of the movies right here. Whoa. And I'm this trillion talk... effort to, to piss me off. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about, no, fuck it. I'll talk about what I had notes for. So I'm going to talk about, about American Honey and Drive. And so you guys, so is this the point where you uh, guess which one I disliked more? Yeah. <laughs> Can I go? Okay. Uh, no, Samir. I'm going to ask Dane to go first. <laughs> I'm going to say you... Hmm. I'm going to go with you think Drive is worst. Yeah, it, to me it's pretty clear that um american honey would be your lesser of two evils everything i know about you and everything you complained about horror films last week tells me that drive would be your absolute nightmare of a film yeah i mean it's his lesser of two evils is american honey for all of our listeners i will announce it before he does because we have talked about this at length but i'm not going to steal his spotlight so Drive is the worst fucking movie ever fucking made. That movie is horrible. That movie is so bad. And I just want to say before I talk so bad about how, to eat it, Mike. I want I want I want to say before I even talk about how bad Drive is that American Honey is fucking terrible and I cannot believe that movie got good reviews. That movie 
it like if if you really put that movie up against any other movies, I say American Honey is one of the worst like top ten worst movies I've ever watched. It is. Have any of you guys watched it? I just want to like I feel a little weird picking it because I don't think any of you guys have watched it. I really actually have. I do know uh, TJ loves this movie. It's, directed, he, it's one that he's recommended to me before, and TJ, I just never got around to watch. For people who don't know, TJ is in our fraternity. He is my little. He's also a great friend of ours, as well as a, a a resident film. He's not really a film bro. He might be the least film bro of us all, but he is. He's like he a closet film bro. Yeah, really. I feel. I feel TJ is fitting Have all the of a film bro. Yeah, no. His favorite movie is Tangerine by uh Rob Baker, which is like the least Rob film Baker. bro. Movie. Yeah, the least film he's bro just movie the biggest, ever made. Such a, like, Dark and Honey is exactly the kind of film I expect TJ to love. Yeah, so I like. I'm just gonna say, like, you, so you guys haven't watched it. It is, bro. It is horrible. It is two hours and forty six minutes long, and nothing is achieved, and no characters are liked. And we, it's interesting that we talked about Hillbilly Elegy. Like, this movie is so heavy handed, and it's like, see, these people are like left behind by society, like. They, they consistently just keep showing shots of insects trapped, like, in, like, you know, glasses and stuff. And, like, that's, like, the common theme. It is so, it is literally so obviously made by someone who never hung around poor conservative people in the Midwest. And absolutely nothing is achieved. And all the actors are from, like, you know, L.A., and they just like have horrible southern accents the entire time. The movie is fucking worthless. Nothing is important is said. Complete waste of time. And <laughs> from from what I know, it has a ridiculously long runtime at like two and a half two hours. Hour, it's two hours and forty six minutes long. Holy and the end, shit! And the and and I swear to God, I swear to God, that movie could be an hour long. Like, I was gonna really say, just what it, based off of the summary you gave, I haven't seen it, but it right off the bat, that's not a movie that needs to be that long. Uh, it's funny your description of American Honey makes me want to see it more because I actually tend to love these sort of like tapestry films that are like long and just highlight a bunch of different characters living their lives. Like I love um, like Rob, a lot of Robert Altman movies that do that. Obviously, I don't think Andrew Arnold is probably on the level of like craft that Ro- Robert Altman might be on. Uh, but I'm actually a little more intrigued by it, hearing you describe it, oddly enough. What? Curious, curious real quick, just on a, a very quick segue. Sam, have you seen Palo Alto? No, interesting enough, because my cousin's in it. But I have uh, I've actually <laughs> never seen that movie. Um, I do hear, like, somewhat, it's, it's a very polarizing movie. Like, some people really, really like it, and some really, really don't. But no, I have yeah, I just, I, it just, I just thought of it because I despise that movie, and it's not for the, all the reasons that you just outlined about American Honey. I despise Palo Alto, but you might see a lot of yourself in Palo Alto with it being about like a sort of you know California high school Suburban experience. California. So game. I just wonder if I wonder if that distance is what makes you hate American Honey. It might make you love another film, or maybe it's just the structure of the film itself. Dude, it's two hours and forty six minutes, and it says zero <laughs> things. Like I don't care if a movie says zero things after an hour and 10 minutes but but you know what here's the most important thing is that drive is the worst movie i have watched you know how Corey said that the joker is the worst movie in the past five years i can say that drive is 
easily in my top three least favorite movies I've seen in the past ten years. And I want Samir to come come into me and say <laughs> <laughs> And I just want Samir to come into me and that's all I want. No, I want Samir to to to, to feel the energy I am bringing out and talk about why this movie is so bad. For all of our listeners, um, I'm coming into Sam as we're speaking. So, <laughs> I think, I think Drive. The thing for me is that I, I really, really, seriously despise this movie, and um, it's for a multitude of reasons. But I think the main one that I'm really gonna, you know, without being overly long, is talk about is that. There's this thing that Nicholas Winding Refn does, and a lot of other directors do it too, um, which is called dead time. So it's just kind of like there's a lot of shots of things just not happening. Time literally freezes. And at its most fundamental and principal level, I hate that idea so much. So like I kind of fundamentally have like that against the movie. Outside of that, I just really don't. Like the because so it's like his movies tend to be very neon drenched, which I'm not like like you know thrilled about. The movie's really slow. It's kind of like the brand. Its selling point is that this is the this is an art house action movie, um, and I think it's just the best of it's a, it's the worst of both worlds in the sense that it's a boring action movie and a bad art house movie in the sense that it's super slow. Um, it's just it's just so goddamn slow. The dialogue feels like. It's two pages long. There's like very little of it. I'm I'm not that crazy about Ryan Gosling as an actor, which me it's probably wait, wait, wait. Samir, I wanna I wanna get to that point because I am a Ryan Gosling supremacist. Like I <laughs> love Ryan Gosling. Like I think he is a great actor. What I don't know why they literally the acting coach must have been like Ryan Gosling, you know like all that natural charisma you have and like your great looks. Like we're gonna take away all the charisma, just literally look pretty. And do absolutely right, nothing. No, fuck you, Corey. <laughs> I know Corey was. No, it, what I find right, actually this interesting. This is the debate is, I want to see here. Yeah, well, here. Well, first, I want to ask if you guys um, have seen any other films by NWR. Because if yeah. you hate Drive, you yeah. must yeah. fucking despise some of his other films. I mean, Drive is. I will not watch. I will not watch any of his. I will not watch Neon Dragon. I will not watch the other movies yeah. he's made because I yeah. know he's just. He's like, it's the, you know, like how we talked about how, well, we haven't talked about, Corey and I have talked about this a little bit, but like Lady of the Portrait on Fire is just two deadpan people talking to each other. And it's like, why should I feel any emotion about them? Drive is the ultimate culprit of like, why should I feel any care in the world about these characters? Because they don't emote. They just don't emote. They just sit there and lack complete emotion like Ryan Gosling is the least relatable or interesting protagonist, maybe ever. I honestly, I'm gonna say it. Like, there is nothing interesting well, about I mean, him in this movie. That is obviously. I mean, it's on the surface. It is true that Ryan Gosling is not a charismatic, relatable character in Drive when his name is just Driver and he doesn't have much dialogue. That is true. But you're coming at the film from a very narrow lens here. Samir kind of said it earlier, and it's okay if Samir thinks the film fails as an art house film, but this is more of an art film than it is a, na- a traditional narrative film, which is to say it has entirely different goals 
than making you relate to and fall in love with Ryan Gosling as a character. Uh, it's it's deliver. I mean, we have this debate sometimes about style over substance. The style here is the substance. I mean, like uh, these like beautiful neon drenched settings. These like scenes of absolute silence. That like what is unspoken is 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 like is the dialogue in a sense. Like that silence is is, is so powerful. The like there's actually I find the film whenever I re, I rewatch it a couple of times I actually find it to be a surprisingly funny film. Like there's like just a subtle humor I think to 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 the silence that I think really works. Um, it has entirely different goals than what when you're you're looking for it, and that's okay if you just want to watch Cinderella Man the rest of your life. But I mean these films. I literally said Cinderella Man wasn't good. You're so annoying. (laughs) (laughs) What he does with Drive, what he does with my personal favorite, which is Bronson, which Bronson is fucking bonkers if you haven't seen that movie. That's just like, um, it's it's almost like the antithesis of Drive because it's so out there and so like high energy, um, but still like carries some of those same NWR trademarks. Uh, You just got to approach them with with a different set of expectations. And it's okay if that's just not what you want out of your film. I could see why you wouldn't like it. Uh, but I don't think that's fair to levy that criticism at the film because that's just obviously not what it's trying to do. Okay, well, what it was trying to do is dumb, and I don't care. The movie <laughs> I, is not good. It's horrible. I will, wait, I, I, I will say the, that the, the car chase scene in that is, is I think, very well done. In, in my no, personal no, no. opinion, they No, 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 no. Because uh-huh. I watched the, I watched, I, cause I was, cause I thought that day today, honestly, I was like, do I actually hate this movie as much? Like, am I just because I want to date Samir, like agreeing with him on this movie? But you know what? I watched the car chases and they are literally so average. There is not one thing they do with the chases that is different that has not been done before. Like, and I get, and I, you know, Corey, to your dumb point about art house movies, like whatever, like, but like, I get like. It, it just fails on both fr- fronts. Like Samir said, it's not a fun action movie. And like, if I'm going to watch an art house movie, you know, like I'll watch, you know, I won't watch an art house movie because they're dumb, but like, <laughs> like it's like, I'm not going to watch drive like an art house movie technically, Sam. So like, it's not that like, you can't like, if you don't like this movie, you're not into art house. Like, you know, George Washington, great art house movie. It's just that I think that in some ways this movie doesn't even deliver on the art house front, which is what I'm saying. I think there's a difference between art house and art film. I mean, like, and that's like a blurry line, but I would say an art house film is any film that really is trying to, you know, break like sort of classical mm. Cinderella Man-esque like storytelling. Then the an art film is anything that is trying to diverge from like narrative as its primary goal. And it's, and it's trying to evoke feeling and it's trying to evoke meaning beyond the story. So like, when in that car chase, like all the sounds and colors that that converge, like it, the like I remember, it's, I think there's like a basketball game right that's playing on the radio, and the sound that's of the, the sirens in the game. distance. Yeah, and then the obviously that in, incredible score that that movie has when all these sounds are converging. That's more about a feeling than it is you're you're rooting for the driver. I mean, it's true that I don't feel a specific attachment to Ryan Gosling, Ryan Gosling's character. But you gotta feel if you don't feel like energized by that scene. And I mean, you're missing out on what I think is a really, like, really well-crafted movie. Yeah, I, I think here's what we can maybe, I mean, unless Sam wants to say more, I think the one definitive thing is true. Watching this movie, you will find out more about how you view movies and what you want to see in a movie. 
So like I agree. watching this I movie agree. I realize how much I prioritize dialogue over things Same. personally. So like and then maybe some other people watching this movie will realize that like to me, my ideal movie would want to be something that kind of blends the sensory experience from multiple angles, which is fine. It's just not me. So I, I, agree. I, I it, it wasn't a, it was a it was a super important movie because I really thought I was gonna love it. Yeah, and, I did and too. I, and and just watching it and just absolutely disliking everything at every front, I was like, "Yeah, this just is not the type of movie I will ever watch," and I will actively shame and be mean to anyone that likes it. Okay, moving on. Yeah, no, I, I <laughs> to close it out. I I think that's a really fair uh, assessment, Samir. Like it it does kind of help you understand what it is that you like or dislike about film. Someone who I also appreciate dialogue, um, but I don't think a lack of it is an indictment of, A, an actor's performance. I mean, Ryan Gosling gives a lot of very subtle looks in this movie that I think um, are a testament to his 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 acting ability. Um, and, yeah, I mean, there's just, like, film, what it can do that no other medium can do is look. It can look at things. So to be able to do that without words and convey meaning is always going to be, um, that's, like, the core success that a film could have. It doesn't mean that every quiet film is good, but it means that if you're able to pull off energy the way this movie can without dialogue uh, i think you're doing something right i mean if it if it works for you it works like i guess for me and sam still remain to be <laughs> yeah mr <laughs> mr theater over here i can understand why you want a little more dialogue i would not work well on stage it's just whatever gets you off if it's handcuffed it's handcuffed you know it's, <laughs> <laughs> if it's coming in sam it's coming in sam yeah i mean yeah, if it's coming in me like samir i'm down like yeah. please please samir. um on that note, <laughs> one thing, one, last thing I'll say about NWR though is I, I would never recommend that you watch any of his other films, with the exception of Bronson, because I do think Bronson is a outlier from the rest in terms of its style, and it's still not like an a, approachable film. It's still fucking weird and different. But I actually would love to hear your guys' thoughts on it, just because uh, it's probably it's Tom Hardy in the lead role, and it might be the single best performance I've ever seen. I, that might be hyperbole, but. As I sit here now, that really might be the best performance I've ever seen. Is is Tom Tom Hardy and Branson? Like, wait, like ever? Wait, like like, wait, mm, like, like a Tom Hardy performance or like ever? Wait, uh, very well could be. Yeah. Oh and my after god. Yeah, you might understand why. Holy Film shit. is like a vehicle than, for like act the fuck out for two hours. Better than like Casey Affleck and like Manchester. Yeah, I mean it's hard to compare. After you, after you, again, I I really need you to just see this movie. It's like it's not okay. even similar. I don't know. Yeah, it's really hard to say. God, I'll check it out. One other thing I'll say about NWR is that for some reason, for whatever reason, he's in Death Stranding. Yeah, <laughs> wait, is Corey, he really? you heard about this? Yeah, he's in Death Stranding. So that's the video game from the um, Hideo Kojima. Yeah, and Guillermo Toro. Yeah, and and Guillermo del, Tor- del Toro's in it, but um, yeah. So that movie, it kind of makes sense because that's gotten kind of the same criticisms where people were just kind of like, "This is just a dude walking through a barren landscape." It has a lot of those art house elements to it, um, and a lot of players were just like, "Yo, this is not doing it for me." Um, so it kind of makes sense why he would be involved with that. Um, but I just thought it was cool that like they kind of recognized his creative direction and included him in the game i don't know if that's what they were going for but i just thought it was a cool coincidence that's interesting yeah, i've been playing death stranding for the better part of like like ever since it came out i've been playing for like six or seven months and i probably will never beat that game because it's 
so slow and you can only play in very small increments. But um, it is cool the way it's trying to connect itself to film through some of those those characters. Um, all right, but let's get on to our next pair of evils. Uh, who wants to go next? I'll go. Do you have a preference? Yeah, let's hear it, Dane. All right, so I'll preface it with I'm a pretty big superhero movie fan. Oof. So I decided to pick two superhero movies. Oh now, God, wait, I get to shit on superhero movies? Let's so go. These movies <laughs> are, are both considered bad. Um, one I do like more than the other. And I hope you guys have seen both of them because I think it could make for some fun discussion. Anyway, which one do I like more? Spider-Man 3 or Batman and Robin? Ooh. Can I put in a guess first? Go for it. I think your lesser of two evils is probably Spider-Man 3. That, but that being said, I'm excited to talk about both of these because I, I have some thoughts. I will also throw my guess in. Dane, I've, I've heard you in the past spew some mighty praise towards Sam Raimi. Um, so that makes me want to say Spider-Man 3, but I'm going to have to go Batman Robin here. I think you like that one better. All right. So I'm looking. I have not seen either of these movies. One is not, way, one is so way better received than the other. Spider-Man 3 is way better received than Batman and Robin, which means to me that you're going to give us an old switcheroo and subvert expectations and pick Batman and Robin, even though looking at these screenshots, it looks absolutely fucking horrible. I mean, it's worth uh, noting that both yeah. of these were critically panned. Um, pro- you are right that one probably more than the other, but both, both of these were pretty uh, poorly received by... I personally three has a sixty-two percent. It has a sixty-two percent Rotten Tomatoes, fifty-nine percent Metacritic, whereas Batman and Robin has an eleven percent Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, I can believe that. I'm just saying that Spider-Man three, especially compared to one and two, was most people were disappointed by it. Still, let's hear what Dane thinks. Yeah. Okay. So I I know both are, are very. Poorly received. I know Spider-Man Three more so now is very poor, poorly received, especially when comparing it to One and Two. Anyway, I personally think that Batman and Robin is a better movie than Spider-Man Three. I knew it. I, would agree. I, I fucking it. read I you. All right, so I, I'll just I'll I'll go into a little spiel. So Batman and Robin. So Joel Schumacher directed. Uh, I believe both. Batman Returns with Jim Carrey as the Riddler and Val Kilmer as Batman. Batman Oh, Batman Forever, yeah. Batman Returns is uh, Tim Burton still. Um, And then Batman and Robin, also directed by Joel Schumacher. In this case, George Clooney is Batman. And the main villains are Mr. Freeze with Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, Poison Ivy, played by Uma Thurman. So, I'm gonna... Yeah, I personally personally think batman and robin is the better movie because i do think that batman and robin is a misunderstood movie i think if you i am not going to disagree that i do think batman and robin is a bad movie but i do think if you watch it in the lens of a movie that was trying to encapture what the 1960s batman had as long also 
um, the same style and tone of the early 1960s Batman comics. I personally think that Batman and Robin pretty much hit the nail on the head with going for a super campy, self-aware Batman movie. Um, I, I mean, you have Mr. Freeze with his very absurd ice puns throughout the entire movie. Um, the bat nipples, which I think objectively is something that is very dumb. Um, but all around, though, I, I do think that aesthetically, all the, all the neons and the gothic nature of Gotham in the movie was actually pretty well done. And if, if you're going at it, trying to make Batman a little bit more lighthearted, but also like self-aware and goofy and campy like the 1960s batman i think like the movie pretty much does exactly that and i mean i have watched both batman forever and batman batman and robin i would say probably within the last three years um you guys can shun me for that but i i, I do think that okay, batman I, I and robin is Go ahead. So Batman Forever is ha- is a uh, Two Face and the Riddler with Tommy Lee Jones and Jim Carrey, right? Yes. And Batman and Robin is Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze, and then Uma Thurman as uh, Poison Ivy, right? Yes. Okay, I was making sure I got the which yes. one's which. And I just watched the trailer; it looked so bad, Dane. Yeah. No, <laughs> go- going off. So I just want to. I want to, Dane. I'll let, I'll let you finish, but I just want to chime in real quick and say that I completely agree with you. I would go as far as to say that Batman and Robin is a good movie. It's a good movie. It it wow. that that that's what I'm saying. Go ahead, finish what you're gonna say. Um, no, I I think that I mean you hit it on the head in terms of how it pays tribute to and recognizes what was so great about the 1960s and some of the original inca- uh, incarnations of Batman. But even think about the director Joel Schumacher, who has made. I mean, obviously he was. Um, uh, we should say rest in peace. He passed away earlier this year, uh, and he. Uh, was a very outspoken gay director, something that especially in the late 80s, early 90s was not uh, necessarily, um, uh, um, that was not the kind of director that could really break into the mainstream. And to really kind of, he low-key sort of turned Batman into like a gay icon. I mean, both of those films start out with like close-ups on like the spandex snapping against Batman and Robin's butt. And like, you know, like, and like his, his like crotch and stuff, which like, you know, now having seen the Christian Bale and Christopher, these Christopher Nolan Batmans and even the the Batfleck incarnation, we probably are like, how could that? That's not Batman. I mean, that's almost offensive. But that was, you know, like that was a testament to, the, or that was a expression of how a lot of people viewed Batman, and that was an attempt to to make the character uh, something a little more fun, something a little more maybe representative, uh, and and something like more in line with what camp is all about. So yeah. I could see why people were confused after getting the Michael Keaton Batman and Batman Returns that was already a little darker and just a little grittier in that Tim Burton way. Uh, but those movies are, are fun, man. And, and like, especially you, you point out Batman and Robin in particular. I really, really, really love uh, the performances we got from Uma Thurman. Um, and to a lesser extent, Arnold Schwarzenegger, but especially Uma Thurman in that one. Yeah. But that's, so that's, is, this a ta- Go ahead. is this a tale of, this, of Batman and Robin being good? Or is Spider-Man 3 really bad? So uh, I'll, I'll get into Spider-Man 3. I, I'll just finish up on a few things with Batman and Robin. So um, the idea of something being campy is something that it comes out of, out of gay culture. And I 
again, with Joel Schumacher being gay and just overall, there is the um, relationship between Batman and Robin in the movie that is also kind of alluded to. Um, I know in the comic books, people often have, have said that Batman and Robin could be a gay couple and I support it. But uh, last couple things, I also really think that Mr. Freeze and not not Bane, I think Bane was a terrible bad guy, and Poison Ivy very much come off as a very comic book accurate hero. It it was at or villain, very much like they were reading straight from a comic panel that might not have translated well to t- to to film, but if you look at the movie as trying to make Batman campy, Batman goofy, Batman in relation to the 1960s Batman, it honestly does the job. So for you guys, I encourage watching it and just watching it in that lens. So I'll get on the Spider-Man 3. Um, so going off, going off of Batman and Robin, Batman and Robin sets a tone right off the bat. You know it's going to be an out-of-this-world, like, out of this world, super goofy interpretation of Batman from the start of the movie. Um, very much the opening scene is Batman hopping into the Batmobile and they're going off to stop Mr. Freeze from stealing a diamond from an art museum. You don't get much more like 1960 Batman than that. Yeah. Yeah. So Spider-Man 3, the tone is all over the place. You don't really know what kind of movie it was ever trying to be. Um, you have like some some darker moments where, well, I mean, with the majority of the scenes with with Venom are all pretty dark. Um, Topher Grace, awful casting choice for Venom. Complete goofball, weird weird performance does not match Venom at all. Um, Tobey Maguire did the best with what he could, but when you look at that movie and you see like the dance scene or the scene where. I can't remember if Mary Jane slaps him or if he slaps Mary Jane, but it's following the dance scene in the bar. And the whole that whole 20 minute sequence is just so goofy. It's overcrowded. The villains, they don't, I feel like with Batman and Robin, the villains intertwine. And to kind of set it up, essentially Iceman and Mr. Freeze, or not Iceman, Mr. Freeze, and- Mr. Freeze and Poison Ivy and Bane kind of are in cahoots throughout the entire movie. And in S- Spider-Man 3, the bad guys are all on their own plot line until the last 15 minutes of the movie. So Is it not it satisfying really- that they all converge together? Like I could see a way in they- which that's kind of cool. I mean, it it could be cool, but the movie so very much it's I, I'll say the villains in the movie are Sp- are Sandman, Venom, and the new Goblin, which is uh, Harry Osborn, who is basically a made yeah, up. Which, by the guy. way, I'll agree that James Franco is not meant to be a dramatic actor. I think he's great in his comedic no. roles, but I've never enjoyed him in a dramatic film. No. I think he's actually a pretty bad actor in that sense. Yeah. I would be really, really upset with you saying that, Corey, because it seems like all he ever wants to do is drama because he's such a... Oh, I know. He takes himself very, very seriously, but yeah, he's just he meant to, to be... His own own asshole so bad. Buddy in Pineapple Express, you know, he's not meant to be... Uh, uh, yeah. I guess he did okay with like 127 hours, but I mean, he really, I think, 
drags in a film like spider-man 3 no he he jerked yeah. himself off so hard about it 127 hours though he thought he was like <laughs> he thought he should have won best actor that year i remember yeah. no it's Colin crazy Firth. yeah if, if you think that's bad my quick super quick story is that i walked into an airport once into a bookstore and it was like one of the things they had one of those like penguin book stuff with really classic books um so i picked out a random william faulkner novel who writes about the southern gothic and stuff and the foreword by was by james franco and then i realized <laughs> like yeah right <laughs> and then I so random. That, like he's he's made 11 movies that he's directed that are straight adaptations of william faulkner novels yeah. they're all terrible they're, Wait, they're like, that's so like, weird bad he has a phd in english literature from yale just for the sake of it for the sake of it um so he really likes to pat himself on the and he brings it up a lot in like interviews and stuff because he did it while he was in film school and i was reading more interviews about that and everyone was like yeah he shouldn't have gotten the film degree or the phd degree because like he was, a, he was a high profile actor by that time so people were just kind of like yeah, we need to give it to him but then again he is I can tell he's a pretty smart dude and I like that he wants to be like this literature goof and I really appreciate Yeah, I mean in, in one sense he's probably all of us, right? Like he's probably all yeah. of us who love movies and literature and wants to like really immerse ourselves in it. And it's really easy to meme and laugh at when it's because exactly. yeah, I don't think like his. Although he's either. probably ashamed to have been in a movie like Spider-Man 3. Yeah. But mm -hmm. if I were to guess which will which will let you continue on, Dan. Sorry, oh, yeah. sorry for hijacking that. No, no, no. It, it's fine. I mean, I think James Franco is terrible in Spider-Man Three, um, but yeah. I mean, if you look at both Batman and Robin and Spider-Man Three, both of them have three villains. In Spider-Man Three, very much Sandman, Venom, and the New Goblin have their own plot lines until the last fifteen minutes of the movie, and then. They kind of all team up, but they don't really team up because there's no like mutual like let's go get Spider-Man like type thing. Um, whereas in, in Batman and Robin, I mean, I'm pretty sure what happens is Poison Ivy breaks Mister Freeze out of jail very much in the first 20 minutes of the movie, and they they team up for the whole movie. And at the end, it comes together, and it turns out there's like a, a little twist with Poison Ivy, and I mean, Spider-Man 3, 2, the shit on it more, I just, when you, especially when you compare it to Spider-Man 1 and 2, 3 is a turd. And I am a big Sam Raimi fan. Like, I, I have recently watched The Evil Dead, and I Evil Dead 2 is incredible. Um, but, I mean, Spider-Man 3 just is so bizarre. Like, it, it really is bizarre and they go for comedic things that just don't work like to samir and Corey, when you were watching the scene where he's dancing down the street do you think that was intentionally supposed to be funny or do you think it was supposed to be serious like to this day i still don't know whereas with batman and robin i know it was supposed to be a self-aware campy goofy movie i agree i think and i I, I think that's a good scene to reference because when I think about that movie, you know, a lot of people blame the Nolan Batman trilogy for like, you know, making superheroes really dark and serious and moving them away from that sort of Batman and Robin sensibility that you're referring to. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously Batman Begins came out in 05, Spider-Man 3 came out, I think a couple years later in 2007, something like that. So obviously, yeah. 
you know, it did come after, but I think Spider-Man 3 represents everything that is wrong with the superhero genre. Every issue that someone like Sam might have with the superhero genre stems yeah, from I like that superhero movie's movies. Of... Say it again? I like superhero movies. <laughs> oh, Eat my, oh, my mistake. Um, <laughs> Idiots. It, that movie, it's, it's okay for a superhero to be super serious. It's also okay for them to be super campy. What's not okay is is to strike this weird imbalance that Spider-Man Three goes for, mm-hmm. where it has no idea what it wants to be. I mean, the first two, the first two are, are some of the still remain some two of the greatest superhero movies ever, and it's because they know that they're um, fun family movies that are that are inspired by comic books that also can take themselves a little bit seriously. Like it, it strikes that it, it knows how to find that balance. But the third one, I think it almost feels the pressure of trying to get kind of dark and serious. But being like, crap, are we, are we still have to be like fun? And then it just makes, again, like you sort of allude to these weird kind of jokes, if they're even jokes, we're not really sure what to call them. It's just for yeah. a director like Sam Raimi, who knows how to do dark and funny, I mean, with you, obviously, you've sung the praises of the Evil Dead franchise um, for the past couple episodes now. And um, he's a guy who you think would know how to strike that balance. And the third one, I think he sort of just felt the pressures of what was happening to the superhero genre more broadly. Samir, what are your thoughts? I I liked Spider-Man 3 when I first saw it, which was probably 2009. I haven't seen it since. And I think a lot of that was just me being a kid and, like, loving Spider-Man. I still, to this day, Spider-Man, live and die by the Spider-Man. But I don't know. I I thought that I just really liked the the villain, Sandman, at that sense. So I don't know if it means anything now, but... For a child, Sandman is dope. Sandman's the best of the I, three villains. Yeah. I was gonna say real quick to chime in. I do think Sandman is the best part of that movie. Yeah, I mean that I was that's the, the, the disappointment, right? Because I, I think most fans are like you, Samir, and that they love Sandman. He's definitely one of the coolest Spider-Man villains. Yeah. So to get him kind of to sort of be like pigeon, like he's kind of just like you know jammed into this movie that's not necessarily about him. Uh, it's mm-hmm. kind of a shame. Yeah. yeah, and as far as the dancing scene you referenced, Dane, um, obviously, like I said, I was a kid when I watched it, so I didn't really notice how bad or off-putting it was. Just thought it was a lighter moment, but I will say this. Does it mean something that that scene continues to – that random part continues to live on for so many years? Like, it's become such a famous meme. That Wait, lighter, what scene is this? I've never heard – like, it's the Sam. one scene where Toby McGuire is walking down the street yes. dancing. So it's goes Spy- like this. So it goes yeah. Oh wait, right. that's a real thing from yeah, a real yeah. movie. Yes, that is a real thing from Spider-Man Three. No oh, way. I mean, like it was just—I don't know. Like literally, maybe something that it has become classic. Maybe it's just because it was so bad, but <laughs> probably no, I don't it, know. I yeah, I have a lot of gripes with Spider-Man Three. I. It's it's it's. I don't think it's a good movie. Um. However, I mean, if we want to move on, we can. I will shoehorn this in from some movie news. The new Spider-Man three that is going to be taking place in the MCU supposedly is going to be an, a, a multiverse movie in which Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, and Tom Holland will all be in the same movie together, which I, I think is pretty dope. That's yeah, going to be sick. Um. I yeah, just that, that's really cool news. I, I just looked it yeah, up. That's so very, uh, sorry, go ahead. What was that? I was just going to add in super quickly. 
our discussion of shitting on James Franco. He dropped out after his first year as a PhD student in English. So, point of clarification. Go on, Corey. Mm-hmm. Might have been even bigger <laughs> news than what uh, than what Dane had to share. <laughs> Wait, I guys, I'm wa- I'm watching the. Oh my god, this scene is so bad. <laughs> watching the Spider-Man three. Yeah, Wait, pretty... this yeah, is I think not there's some weight. So you said listen. But I don't so think then they that tried to make it live on without meme culture. You know, I mean, that's kind of how I, it, it's lived on. Yeah. Wait. So they tried to make that a a legitimate, like, serious yeah. movie so as well. I I will Holy I will shit. add some context to this scene. So, no, I don't think any context is needed. That that scene was horrible. Well, essentially, Venom. When Venom takes you over, is it symbiote? It's a it's a symbiotic relationship in which Venom controls you. And Does when that happens, this mean that both benefit. Am yes. I dumb? Yeah, yeah, it is. And it might it, be parasitic. yeah, parasitic. Parasitic is when one benefits. Yeah, yeah, parasitic would be one. Symbiotic is. Yeah, is so two. it looks yeah, like neither part, benefit. I guess well, at least, it, it, unless he gets good dancing abilities. It's so, okay. Hold on. Okay, let me let me let me go in a little. Two minute spiel here. It might be even a little bit less. Hey, so Venom with, <laughs> with Eddie Brock, who is played by Topher Grace in this movie. I mean, Venom in in and of itself is done terribly in this movie. I actually really like the Venom movie. I don't think it's necessarily wow, an amazing really? movie, but I do That's think it's entertaining. And that I can't, I can't let you have that. Okay. Well, <laughs> so, I'm gonna agree with Cor- I haven't I, I haven't seen that movie. In- I, don't, I don't think it's as bad as people say. Really, no, I'm gonna I think agree it, with I'm gonna agree with Corey and say it's horrible, and I have not seen it. So don't it's terrible, guys. I mean, I that movie, it the looks fact like that it came out when it did after we've gotten such a revolution of the superhero genre, it is just so fucking like boring. It like it feels like it was made in 2001. There's yeah. no way that that movie oh, really came works. out as recently as it did. I'm not I just at all an amazing Tom Hardy performance. Tom Hardy is not even good in that. If if you I know I think on this podcast we mentioned uh, Upgrade with Logan Marshall Green at one point I think we mentioned it very briefly yeah these are the same movie or at least the same kind of central performance and Upgrade it, and Logan Marshall Green's performance so much fucking better than whatever shit Tom Hardy and the rest of the the guys the guys over at Sony tried to pull with that movie that was just I'm sorry Let I'm me... excited for the second that will give us Andy Serkis as the director yeah but I'm sorry I'm sorry go ahead Dan <laughs> no 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 it's good. I'll, I'll go on my last long, long little spiel. No, it so won't with, be long. It won't, it won't be, be long. long. With Venom, I don't think Venom is a good movie, but seeing how they did Venom in the movie was refreshing because it was much more comic book accurate not and just like overall better done than Spider-Man 3. Going back to Spider-Man 3, what is supposed to happen is when the symbiote takes you over, it, it kind of changes your personality. So in the movies, Peter Parker becomes like this emo grunge dickhead. And it does, you would think that he would just be super sulky and angry the entire time. But no, they have him dancing down the street. And he... And then he, he he dances in the restaurant and with with Mary Jane and it's just such an awkward scene, and everything that they were going for with Venom in that movie was 
just all over the place. And I, I mean, I do think that Venom in Spider-Man 3 was much more poorly done than Venom as a character in the actual Venom movie. I do think there's a, a, a lot of criticism for Venom, but I will say that I, I do think they did Venom as a character much better than Spider-Man 3 did. You know, if, if all of our presidential candidates spoke with the same passion that Dane uses when he speaks about superhero films, he likely would not be able to be deciding between the lesser two evils. That's 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 what the last thing I'll say on that. There's a bright future ahead with with young people like Dane and their love for Venom and symbiotes, not parasites. And I, yeah, I just all I need to... now is Eminem to do a cover song about my life. <laughs> Venom, Venom, Venom. <laughs> Most of Sam's discussion centered on negativity, whereas 90% of Dane centered on positivity and positivity. <laughs> Two films he hated, and he's like, honestly, they're amazing. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, Dane, you're so fucking annoying because you were like, I picked two superhero movies I don't like. And then the entire time talked about how much you like superhero movies. And honestly, <laughs> I just wish person. I just wish I'd seen both Always of these smiling. movies to tell you that both were bad, but I you know. didn't watch any of them, so I couldn't tell you neither were bad. So, so this is why we picked this topic this week. We were hoping this topic would help our listeners learn a little bit more about each of us, and I think that really sums up exactly why that's the case tonight. Yeah. <laughs> um, yep. Let me ask you, you think that's, you have that's so funny. Two good films to end the episode on, or would you like to go now? Uh, that's hard to say because you might have me beat on that. I, I Corey said Corey was beat the episode on, so I can go. Yeah, Corey. Corey said that he was being a heartless dick in our group chat. So yeah, I, I, I have, would, two I would really love... sad movies that to talk about. So I just don't know if we want to end on a sad note. If you want me to go yeah, now, it's each other. I episode. mean, after this election, shouldn't we add on a sad note? Am I right, guys? Wow, that, there's okay, something well, to that. Your call. Like, if you don't want to end on a sad note, then you can go now. No, same as a point. I'll, I'll close this out. So go ahead. Give us your two yeah. evils. Um, you know, which are two uh, grave evils for me. Are, and they both were well-received, too, because that was my interpretation of the prompt. So they were Lost in Translation. And, what? And Requiem <laughs> for a Dream. Oh, okay. Well, we know well, we Corey's opinion on about, uh, Samir's love for Darren Aronofsky, and now he's he's putting yeah, that Aronofsky is an evil. But, I mean, my instinct is to guess that, that Reckon for a Dream is your lesser of two evils, just because I I know that on some level you have a respect for Aronofsky, and would even if you don't like this film, you might um, be willing to forgive some of his sins. So I'm gonna go with Reckon for a Dream there, but um, I'm very offended by Lost in Translation being, uh, at least according to my guess, your 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 true evil. So. Wow. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm honestly shocked because I actually, I, Requiem for a Dream is is vastly overrated. That is one of the the, the main top five. Oh, yeah, I don't, like, I don't like Requiem for a Dream very much yeah. either. So I, just, I do want to put, I, I agree with Re- you there. Yeah, Requiem for a Dream is like top five overrated film bro movies ever made. Um, I actually, I still like it though. I don't, I don't dislike it. I don't that's love how, it though. That's how I'm feeling with both of these. I'm pretty. I mean, I don't, both I don't, of them, you these... look, think when you think about them in culture, they're both kind of regarded as classics, which is a, a, a weird thing to think about. But I'm kind of surprised by both of them. Um, I'm going to say Lost. In, I'm going to say Lost in Translation is the one you dislike more. And I, I would I would love to hear why you dislike this movie, because as someone who loves dialogue, I think Lost in Translation has a really, really good script. 
I'm like, I'm actually kind of shocked. And, and I will say that I, I think that movie is also vastly overrated because of like the Amanda Dobbins of the world, just jerk off Sofia Coppola to no fucking end. But like, I, um, I still think it's a good movie. Yeah. I think, uh, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say that you think, uh, Requiem for a Dream is the better movie. Even though I do think uh, Lost in Translation is still a great movie. So again, like I was, I was so thrilled with this idea of picking movies that I knew, I knew you guys would like these both, and I knew <laughs> that everyone would like these both. So just trying to make it interesting, but um, it's crazy. Well, I don't know. I, I, I think I should take it as a compliment that you guys kind of know me well enough at this point that you all guessed it correctly. Yes. Requiem for a Dream is the lesser of my two evils, and I really don't like Lost. Well, see, this is, and I'll let you explain to me, but this is yeah. why, this is why I, I like I think find movies very fascinating because if you just like made me just guess randomly without any sense of what you like and dislike, um, or about or, or any sense of your opinion on these films, if you just told me to guess, I'd be like, oh, Samir loves Lost in Translation. Just be, like just knowing what I know about your interest in movies. Uh, and about that movie, yeah, I mean, you know, there's no there's no perfect formula to what makes a film good or bad, obviously, because I would have thought that film fits your formula to a T. So I'm really Absolutely. curious to hear your thoughts. And I thought, and a lo- I feel like a large reason why I kind of have this shock reaction towards it is because I thought I would too. The poster for that movie is like one of my favorite posters ever. It still is. <laughs> so, and I, so I wish I wish it started and ended there. Um, yeah, I don't know because see, for me, I would consider my favorite drama genre the dramedy and the family drama. Um, and you know, what I'll start with, I guess, is the fact that um, it's just right after movie ends. You can't really explain it. Like you can do all of these and now again, this is just opinion at the end of the day. Um, but I just had a hollow feeling at the end where I was like, I feel like started here and i ended there too um the one major criticism that i will levy at this movie which really bugged me um maybe more than most you know, being a being a minority um was how how it kind of interacted with japanese people and japanese culture in the movie um like, i feel like there's several shots in the movie especially when they're um, when she goes, Scarlett Johansson is 18 in the movie, by the way, which I think is crazy. Um, Wait, she's 18 wait, when they yeah, filmed that? She was 18 when she did that movie. Isn't that nuts? No way. Uh, wait, that's shocking. I thought she was like at least in her mid-20s. Oh, she was 18. <laughs> crazy. Because when wait, I was 18... Wait, was she supposed to be playing a Japanese woman? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, at first I was like, Dane, what are you saying? I was like, oh, never, never mind, never mind. Dane's on a roll tonight. I know, I'm so proud. I'm so proud of you, except for the part where you, like, talked good about superhero movies. Besides (laughs) that, you've been doing great. Yeah, but I think, so, yeah, what I was saying was that, so there's, like, moments where I think it's Bill Murray's character. uh, It's I'm kind of hazy with the, so, he's getting photographs taken and all of this by the Japanese people, and they very much kind of just feel like props versus, like, actual people there. Um, and 
it's just kind of you know an american story in a japanese uh background which kind of is a lot of the same criticism levied against isle of dogs which wes anderson made and um, there's this really interesting youtube video on it and how in a lot of wes anderson movies like um Arguing unlimited like his characters kind of feel like props even though i didn't feel it as much but in this movie i truly felt it but at the end i was just kind of like wait a minute like i can't imagine anybody who is japanese or anything like that possibly you know finding this movie appropriate or like even like i don't know like it like it does it justice like to me it just felt so wrapped up in this thing that um Stephen Yoon of Walking Dead termed the white gaze, which I think that, I don't know, like this movie kind of uh, epitomizes that for me. Um, as far as the dialogue, I didn't find it that, again, I'm not a huge fan of Sofia Coppola. I don't know if you guys have seen her latest outing, On the Rocks. Oh, it's On the Rocks is not good. I think it might be a contender for one of the worst movies of the year, seriously. Yeah, it's it's not good. Um, I haven't heard good things. Same. Yeah, it, it's, yeah, you know, like, I've never found her. I, I think what I can say about her, so I'm going to try and be positive, but what I will say is that she's kind of got this like going for her in her other movies where they feel just a little bit off rhythm, but there's something there. There's an appeal factor, which is why so many people I think like Lost in Translation. Um, Bill Murray is really like an enjoyable performer. And Scarlett Johansson, um, even at 18, gives a great performance. Last five minutes I did enjoy, but I don't know. I, it, it just felt like the whole movie um, felt bland and lackluster and I didn't go anywhere with it. And um, I don't know. It just it, it just felt like a complete disrespectful disservice to the people in the country and just, I don't know, in a way of telling that story in general. So coming to, well, you know, I talked about the movie. I Wait, like, wait let's, let's stick with Lost Translation for a second. Oh, yeah, stick yeah, with yeah, Lost I want to hear I really talking. want to talk about this. You actually think you make a really good point about the film's relationship with um, its Tokyo setting and the Japanese people around the two main white characters. You're definitely right. Like you're you're 100 right that that film honestly relies on like somewhat racist humor, um, and it, it does just sort of perpetuate like a, um, like a like an overdone stereotype of like going to. A, a foreign space and still just focusing on two American white characters. Like, obviously, like, that's very much a thing. And I definitely think that it is important to move away from that uh, in film. Um, and I, I, I would levy that same criticism at the Darjeeling Limited, which I love that movie. So it's hard, it's hard for me to recognize that, but I, um, I do recognize that. And like, I actually thank you for pointing that out. I, I will defend Lost in Translation. And I think you mentioned Isle of Dogs. Um, as an example of this, they're at least both wrestling with that idea, right? I mean, think of the the name of the movie, Lost in Translation. Like it's it's about issues of, of translation and and issues of um, you know, like just like maybe otherizing people people unfairly. Isle of Dogs, I think, does a lot of really cool things with the translation and the way it like sort of incorporates translating and subtitles into the film. I could see why the attempt to recognize it in both of these movies isn't enough and is on it maybe even like part of the problem in a way like maybe it, it perpetuates this like like a uh, otherizing thing going on but i do at least again i'm i'll totally mean i'm coming at it from a uh, as a white viewer and so i'm recognizing that maybe clouds my judgment but i think that the acknowledgement of that tra that translation thing going on there is pretty cool like i don't know I, I, that's what 
I find pretty fascinating about both of these movies. I don't know. I don't know you're I'm, like I'm as I'm talking through this, I'm sort of wrestling with with the, this uh, dynamic and whether or not it is okay. I don't, I don't know. It's a very interesting discussion and a pretty hard one that I think a lot of films have to wrestle with. I mean, I think for sure the title is interesting, but I just don't think it justifies making everybody that's not the two white characters literally like um, NPCs, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. 2020 movie certainly does not fly at all. Eric, if, if it were to come out now, um, yeah, it, it would be really, really, really overtly bad. I think, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And like bad people on film, uh, maybe isn't as uh, fun as we used to think it was. I don't know. I mean, and even kind of just escaping that racial angle, which I mean, even just say that it was like this movie was set in like Iowa or something like that, or like maybe like New York, right? Still think, which is pretty much what On the Rocks was. Like it was kind of like these two characters go throughout New York. I think she does. And I felt this was On the Rocks. I didn't find story between the two and their kind of relation as compelling as I thought it would be. Um, there's a movie that, I don't know, it kind of, now that I'm thinking about it, might be a little bit similar. Have you guys seen the George Clooney movie, Up in the Air? Yeah. Um, so it, it's kind of yeah. it's kind of about like George Clooney and like um, like him like having an affair and like, or not him, but like, so he's like this like player guy and then like he goes he home and to like this he's girl with a woman and, like, that's having an affair on him yeah yeah, yeah okay. so um and then in this bill murray's just kind of like this guy trying to find love and he's old and he finds this young girl in japan blah blah, blah. um I, I don't know i just didn't find it that that compelling or interesting or worth its even runtime it wasn't even overly long i just got bored by the movie outside of the really yeah, dang, i think it's a very I mean, I'm glad you that you did like the final five minutes because I yeah, think I it's it's really one of the best endings I've ever seen. Like, I really I, love I like that the, the fact that minutes. they it's so understated. Like, you will never know what they actually say to each other. You can only guess. I like that, yeah. I I do like yeah. I I do agree that it it doesn't show off or appreciate like the culture that they're with it that they're operating within and. Frankly, I haven't, I haven't seen this movie since I was a senior in high school, so I don't really remember um, maybe some of the racist tropes that you do, Samir. Obviously, like Corey said, from the white perspective that I have, and total, totally valid criticism. But with Corey's point about Lost in Translation, like the title of the movie, to me the movie is about feeling isolated from your surroundings. So of course the movie is going to be a little, um, I guess icy around the surroundings because they, they just don't they don't feel comfortable they don't feel like they're operating within um you know a space that makes them feel comfortable which can i mean it, it's not a obviously not i'm not saying it's okay for a movie to be you know racist or racially insensitive if they the com the characters don't feel comfortable but more i'm saying like it is a movie about essentially two people feeling lost, i.e. the movie title, and trying to find some solace in each other, even if the solace they find in each other um, is kind of just out of desperation. Like, these two would never talk to each other at a bar. They would never, you know, see each other off the street and stop each other. It's more of a 
two two people that are put to the brink of depression of loneliness of uncertainty and can they find happiness in that situation and i love that the movie doesn't offer like a very definitive answer to can two people find happiness out of just sheer unfortunate circumstance um because it's a you know a a trope that i i think isn't really wrestled that much in movies and i i really do love this movie i think i think it is really really good so i I definitely disagree with you on this that's you definitely came with a hot take by picking by picking that as not even just one of your two films but your your most evil of the two yeah i mean the other thing i'll say is that people were so quick I mean, people are so quick to embrace this film and like everyone, as soon as it came out, rejected Emily in Paris, which is terrible. And by the way, it got renewed. For Emily a- in Paris is, I hope your hot take isn't that Emily in Paris is better than Lost in <laughs> No, 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 absolutely not. Um, <laughs> even I wouldn't go that far. But what I will say is that they're just, I mean, I'm just kind of so sick of these movies about like Americans in other countries that just kind of skitter through like they don't make a meaningful you like i don't know maybe like i was thinking as i was watching it like it's been a while since i've seen this movie as well um but i think what sets it up there's some like outwardly like straight up racist scenes in this movie that i'm thinking i'm I'm forgetting now um but i I remember when i was watching it i was just pissed off the whole time and and emily in paris that was kind of like the i didn't see emily in paris but that was people's (laughs) complaint where it was just kind of like oh the french are just kind of um shown in just kind of like a way mean, that you unflattering. know provides the american and like it's just a very american view which is interesting yeah um, it, it is weird when you look at a movie like that that is that is not or i guess that it's, it's set in a different culture you would ex- expect and hope that a movie like that would embrace fully embrace that culture like that and really I, I guess engage like, more meaningfully, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but is that is that actually typical of Americans? Like, like let's be honest. Like, like we. I, I mean, like, no, I'm obviously like, that's should, not. We, I tell like, like, you, that's not what Americans like, do. But it doesn't mean that they should. Like, we should hope. No, no, no. Yeah. And I agree. Like, we should hope for it. And maybe it's not. To Samira's point, it's not worth putting them on the camera if they don't. Um, like maybe it's a story that's not worth talking about. But Indeed. I don't think I don't think how they deal with their culture is atypical of unfortunately many Americans that would be in this situation. See, yeah. I, I, I think I think we should ride more with. Sorry, do you, well, you want to answer this? Well, no, I, I was just gonna say he, you bring up a good point, and I've thought at length about this with like Call Me by Your Name too, with the same debate of um, it's not not about Americans, but I know Call Me by Your Name had like a debate of like is this a movie about like a guy getting groomed um and like yeah. it, it kind of had that controversy too so the debate the question then becomes what do we make of movies where characters in the movie are just not great like they just do like not good stuff like can you not like the movie because of that and i think what it comes down to is the tone the movie takes towards its characters so if if lost in translation communicated to the viewer that hey these characters are dum-dums and they are not interacting with their surroundings and they're treating the japanese people like they're not whatever and that would have then i would have been like yeah that's fine but when the movie also seems to be on the side of the characters where it's just very much like not even 
making it evident that the Japanese characters really have a storyline and like is actively engaged in portraying them in a certain way, then I'm like, okay, it's the, cause it's never the character's fault. It's the movie's fault is what I'm saying. Um, the other thing um, that I, yeah, I agree with that. I think, I think in the case of Lost in Translation though, it's a film that it does a little bit of both. I don't, I don't know. I mean, like it, I think it kind of points a mirror at the viewer and is like, bro, this book, this might be you, man. Like if you're feeling lost, like you could, you know, and you could like, you know, sound like this sometimes. You could sound like a yeah. piece of shit. Um, and that that's not cool. But also on the other hand, it's kind of saying like, you're not alone, man. Like, look, like, look at these people. So, I mean, I, it, I think I don't think it's as simple as supporting its characters, but it's not as, um, maybe it isn't as like, um, critical of them as it could be. Yeah. And I think, so the, what it comes down to for this movie is that it was set in Japan. So if this is a movie, a lot of people like this movie, cause it's about, it evokes these feelings about like loneliness and isolation. So then my thing becomes that. Why couldn't it have been set in a sleepy town in Texas? Like, if right. Yeah. Get in, yeah. Exactly. Think that, and that was going to be my what I was going to say to Sam's point. Is, like, I, yeah, I agree that by yeah. by using farm spaces as a space for white people to go find themselves, what are you saying about that space? Yeah, exactly. I was going to ask the question to you guys, um, simply as you basically answered it, Samir is could this movie have taken place somewhere in the U.S.? Yeah. It definitely yeah. it, it, that's a good that that is a really good point i didn't think of that and i agree this this could be a sleepy town in the midwest and it would be the the exact same storyline yeah, like, and the same emotions exactly if it but was coastal that, elites in the midwest or something like that's foreign to them probably so like yeah you know, they speak the same language they wouldn't have to translate anything so i thought this movie might have been more <laughs> you have that cool title yeah, if yeah, that i would had actually to, be a really good title if it was them in the midwest huh. <laughs> that would have been a really good version of it yeah uh, if i had to reinvent the movie with the circumstance that they were in japan i would kind of kind of redesign this movie maybe even leave scarlett johansson out of it and make it bill murray this guy whose life is falling apart much like in birdman where he's very much in his like second act and he's there um and he's kind of going through this culture and it starts off by him not understanding and them because i know i agree with you Corey. isle of dogs does this thing where at points they don't subtitle their characters in japanese that's drawn a little bit of criticism but if i had to do it i would kind of slowly gradually increase like the um the i don't know the understanding that the viewer has about the characters the japanese characters we can kind of see bill murray's character's understanding of it grow i don't know i feel like what i'm trying to say is that if i had to reinvent this movie i would make lost in translation about bill murray's journey in a foreign space understanding himself and also understanding the foreign environment and how the foreign environment understood him rather than two people in a foreign place exploring love when it could have been done in america and you don't need japan for it yeah but, it's, it's kind of funny like you have a movie it's like Oh, Bill Murray, he goes to Japan and he falls in love. I feel like you're, you're typical, you would think, oh, could, he probably falls in love with a Japanese woman. No, it's yeah, a white it, woman. And it's just like, it really, I, I guess it, it, that does seem, and that is very off. <laughs> yeah. But. Um, All right. Here, I'll yeah, give you a couple well, minutes on looking for a dream and then we'll. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. But because I do make, think that we should touch on it because as a, it's as a, Pretty devastating film. I think it'll be a nice segue into the two films I've brought for us tonight. 
Yeah. Um, so Requiem for my for a Dream was the lesser of my two evils. Um, as the listeners of this podcast and the film bros themselves know, I, I do really like Darren Aronofsky. And Corey hit it hit the nail right on the head when he said that I have some semblance of respect for him, which is kind of why um, this was the lesser of my two evils. And I like bits of this movie. Um, I don't know. I think it's too heavy handed in its approach in that. So the book was really well received. And I haven't had a chance to read the book. I've always wanted to. Um, but I think that with with this movie, the editing is just, it feels very jagged. And I know that's kind of like a mainstay of a lot of his films. But in this movie, I personally just didn't enjoy it all that much. Um, and at times it kind of veers into like the overly, you know, over territory. Um, and that kind of took me out of it a little bit. I think that the first 20 or so like i love when the title credits so like there's this i don't know if you guys remember maybe it's been a while since you've seen this movie but like the first five minutes happens and like this thing happens where it's like a jump cut and then like two like prison bars roll in really quickly and it says requiem for a dream i really like that like title sequence of it um yeah i don't know like for me it's just like where where like i could feel the movie getting a little too over and in some ways that was kind of isolating rather than like bringing like for me to feel the emotional weight of something it's more like if it's like slow and i'm really feeling it and i'm in the moment um and i'm feeling the weight of that like i don't know like one of the most emotional moments uh of movies that for some reason i can think of now there's been so many but in nebraska Corey, i know you've you guys have you guys seen nebraska Love no, that I, film. I, I still really gotta watch it because of yeah. the... well I'm, I'm not gonna ruin it it's, there's no way for me to talk about it without ruining yeah, don't it, talk but... about it i will kill you um but okay here let's here's can all I, can here, I... okay well, what yeah, else you is go. That one of the main characters in the movie wants something really really badly and the end of the movie in a way end up getting what they want in a way and seeing that kind of happiness um it's just super emotional and i think that it's a slow thing it takes the whole movie like have you guys seen the pursuit of happiness with will smith yeah actually so you know actually, how yeah. at the end of that I, I love that movie by the way at the end of that movie whenever he will smith's character finally gets the deal and the job and he starts crying it's like his whole like the whole movie he's getting turned down for it and he really really wants it that's why that moment feels as like i was bawling at that movie um, and I don't cry a lot for movies. I, I think really you're tough, aren't you? Samir, you're really um, tough, aren't you? Yeah, I'm, I tough as nails. So, <laughs> yeah, you, you're you're the Samir. You're the one who doesn't jump during horror movies, right? <laughs> yeah, that's me. <laughs> With um, no, uh, I, I said I was just saying that I think you're getting at something that I think is important that I I kind of want to keep us talking about with my two films, um, because. I think emotion in movies, and tell me if I'm interpreting you right, like emotion in movies, it sounds like you want it to come from the script. You don't want it to come from the editing or really, or anything else. It should come from, from the story it should, or it should come from performance. It should come from something a little more grounded than the manipulation of the film itself. Exactly. Cause I think really emotional moments are at their root stemming from ideas like human emotions and you have to really earn moments. You can't just moments and they can't be artificial they have to be things that really you know you have to you have to connect why a character would want something kind of like say that like i i wanted to win scb president okay and there's a movie about that 
if I just stated that, like you have to, the viewers have to understand why I want that. Like for what reason? Maybe like I have a like I have six siblings and they all were SGB president. Okay, that makes sense. That's why he would want to be SGB president. So I think that that's kind of an example I can use for like writing to the point where you understand why a character wants something so you can put yourself in their shoes. And when they finally get it, you kind of feel that happiness too. Or when they don't get it, you feel that soul crushing sadness. That yeah, it's, it's tough because I'm kind of, when I think about Requiem for a Dream, and I don't, I'm not a huge fan of this film either. I, I just tend not to really like find myself, I don't know, Darren Aronofsky just doesn't really do it for me. But I almost feel the need to defend it here a little bit because it kind of reminds me of what we were talking about with Drive earlier. I mean, like, in a way, Requiem for a Dream is kind of like an art film again. Like, it's more it, it interested in is. kind of, yeah, it's like, it's really more interested. In, I mean, yeah, you're right. It definitely is because it's, it, it's more looking at, uh, like a visualization of the internal experience of addiction and 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 just general mental health struggle um and it's not as interested in like you know really connecting you with its characters and um with providing motive and, and things like that uh, and i do think i mean i think the final se sequence of that film is i, I, I mean i don't know it's pretty obnoxious in a way but it's pretty fucking yeah, cool at the same time no it's it's pretty spectacular honestly i know it, i my my opinion on requiem for a dream is it definitely like i love sad movies like the majority of the movies i watch are are definitely on the sadder side and but i would say this movie honestly verges on torture porn at times where it's like right. look at all the sad things that are happening and there's just no that's a, really, that's a really good point i think that gets at what i don't like about the movie yeah so it's like there's there's on, there's almost day. no yeah, there's almost there's almost no reprieve in this movie, where yeah. it just is a sad thing happens over and over and over again, exactly. and 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 that's not to say that people don't live lives where sad things happen over and over and over again, but it's like, after a while, it's like, am I really feeling sad for the character, or am I just like emotionally drained from all these bad things happening to them, that's and exactly. I think. And and I like so I totally I totally think that Requiem for a Dream has is not aged amazingly, and at times I don't think I I don't think I'll ever rewatch this movie because I I remember as like a, a high school junior I think I watched this which was like you know height of my angst and like hatred of the world and even as a high school junior I was like damn dude like lighten yeah. up a little. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, to like, me, it's shit. like one of those rare movies that's like so sad that it's kind of off-putting in the sense that like I don't feel the sadness; I just feel like off-put. Um, it, there's this one movie called Precious. Okay, it came out in 2009. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard of it. Okay, uh, yeah, that movie is also torture porn. Yeah, like nothing, so, it's, it's a movie good, about like nothing you know, good black women and like. She lives She's like molested. Like, yeah, it's it's horrible. Like, she has an abusive mom, sexually abused, and it just things get. She has like teen pregnant. Like th things just keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And I don't think there's any salvage. And it's kind of interesting because I don't know a movie that's successfully done that for me. Where at the end of it, I'm like, wow, that was great. Where I'm just in such a weird yeah. mental state. Where it's I'm interesting. Part of me is like, with at least with precious and like. I'm like, well, you know, because I agree with you guys. I think that movie is a little brutal to watch um, and not, and really not a great movie for that exact reason. And yet part of me is like, well, shit, like this 
is her life. Like I need to be watching. Like I have a responsibility to be to be to tolerate this. Um, because like I'm sitting here watching from the comfort of my own home. A film that I think I really I really love. I I watched it recently. I think I mentioned it to you guys a couple weeks back. Is Michael Haneke's Amour. Uh, mm-hmm. A-M-O-U-R, like it's a really, French really, film. Really, really sad um, too. Yeah, that's a brutal film to watch, but it it really like it grabs you by like the collar of your shirt and says like you better watch these images. Like you like you might not you might want to look away, you might not have the patience for these people, but like you need to 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 confront this and wrestle with this and experience this. And I think it's a really impactful movie for that way, or for that reason. Maybe like these other movies that we're referring to don't really um, convince you, like or don't don't grab you like that and tell you why it's important. I think that this that the, that Haneke's film does do that, and I'm not sure if Precious or Requiem for a Dream or um, I'm really excited to talk about my two next films because I think they'll yeah. expand the conversation in meaningful ways. But uh, yeah, I don't know. You bring up an interesting point, guys. Where it's like torture porn is not does not make for a good movie, but also do we have the right to look away from it i don't know i uh i i mean we're we're getting off on the sad note now so i think we should probably go over the Corey's uh picks here in a bit uh, a movie for me that does that i don't know what your opinions are on the movie room with brie larson mm-hmm. i think room mm-hmm. is a trim i started crying like 20 minutes into the movie and i'm pretty i cried the rest of the movie and I mean, at the end of the movie, it's depressing the entire time, but you are, we, we talked about like the, some like the emotional detachment from the characters. Um, and I think like in Room, I am just so, I was so connected with Brie Larson the entire time. And, the, and for me, the entire movie is just gut-wrenching. Yeah, that's a, that's actually a great example. And you, um, I'm, I'm now going to bring up my two films because I do think they'll, they'll relate to this a lot. But you get at something kind of important, which is like just some release, right? Like some release of pressure or anxiety. Like, like in I agree that movie's pretty much sad throughout. But even in the smallest little interactions we get between Jacob Tremblay and Brie Larson in that film, there's some like release of oh, like that's what childhood is like. Oh, like that's what like the love between a mother and a son is like. There's like some sense of of hope and and you know, and some things are purely you don't necessarily need relief or hope like maybe we don't deserve relief or hope in every story but it does unfortunately reality is it does do something for us as viewers all right right. i do want to but i really want to introduce my two films because i think i think i might yeah i know and i I think i might uh i think i'm gonna i think you guys feel pretty strongly about these movies if or at least some of you will we'll see so yeah we're gonna end on a pretty sad note keep this sad streak going uh the two films that's, I, I, they're both considered pretty good movies. One I know is is really really beloved. My two films are Beautiful Boy, which I really do not like, and Grave of Fireflies. What, Corey? A very 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 sad movie. And I'm curious to hear what you guys think about these two. Okay, I'm gonna go first, and I'm gonna say that. Of the fireflies is the lesser of his two evils and he dislikes beautiful boy more okay so i've never watched beautiful boy so i don't really know what Corey thinks about this movie i'm reading i actually i'm gonna be honest have never heard steve of this Carell movie yeah it's, t- it's timothy chalamet steve carell and amy ryan i also think grave of the fireflies is probably your lesser of the two evils 
So I'm going to go opposite because you two have gone one way. And I'm going to say Grave of the Fireflies is Corey's he hates more. Specifically because he knows I like that movie. And throughout the group chat today, he was talking about how big of a dick he is. And I am <laughs> simply convinced that he knows that I really like this movie. So he's going to say that this was this movie is not good. And I'm going to sit here and steam and get mad. So Corey, of the two well, movies... What was your lesser of two evils? One thing yeah, I would say, Sam, um, oh, go ahead. I'll, yeah, chime in. Yeah, like right before your big reveal, um, I thought Beautiful Boy did was met with like mixed reception. Like people, yeah, it wasn't. It's not as critically loved as Grave of the Fireflies is. Yeah, um, yeah sixty-seven percent Rotten yeah. Tomatoes isn't isn't super good. Um, yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I mean, Sam is right that I, earlier today I was talking about how I'm going to be bringing two sad movies tonight and. I should preface it by saying that uh, I am just terrible at being affected by sad movies. I I joke about it a lot, but I honestly like hate that about myself. Like I You're so really, annoying. I know. I mean, it, it's it's probably does sound obnoxious, and I I find it obnoxious. Like I do genuinely, and I mean it's very genuine. I really wish I could like connect more deeply with the emotions of films. Like I sometimes feel like a movie wants me to cry, and I would love to have that sort of emotional release, and I just can't really access it. So that could have very that could have a lot to do with why i despise these two very sad movies sam is also right that i really 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 wanted to piss him off tonight but i actually just made a <laughs> switch as we were having this previous conversation because i was just sort of thinking more about what it is i like and dislike about movies so it is true that grave of the fireflies is my lesser of the two evils i think oh, beautiful Boy is an absolute travesty of a film um a film that i honestly just find like almost offensive and when we talk about torture porn i i think that term could apply here on one hand it does sort of have those releases that we're talking about by the way the, the conversation about like releases is kind of what made me flip like i think grave of the fireflies at least give you some cute moments between the the two siblings uh that we, and we can touch on those in a little bit but beautiful boy i mean as much as steve carell and timothy chalamet try to save this movie and and, and they really do try i think their performances are good i, I would never, i don't want to take that away from them the direction and the and the the manipulation of the viewer in this movie is just again i just find it disgusting like they they and i, I a lot of movies are, are guilty of this one of my absolute least favorite things a movie could do is really play a licensed song like almost in general i mean there's some great needle drops out there that work on you know, maybe like a dazed and confused or some movies that where the music is really crucial to to its spirit but needle drops in movies um while cool on the surface are almost always in service of just some really kind of like lazy work on the part of the filmmaker and i think beautiful boy is a great example of that you have these moments where timothy chalamet might be sh showing some really true emotions steve carell might be really really sad about you know for those who don't know this is a story i actually like Requiem for a dream it's about uh, uh, a son who is dealing with addiction and it's kind of about his father trying to trying to help him and just about his own struggles through that it's also a memoir so like it's true yeah, it's, yeah, yeah it's based on a, on a on a memoir and then again i don't want to take away from those very real struggles but instead of allowing me to sort of examine chalamet as a character um and sort of allowing me to sort of consider the relationship and consider the dialogue, consider the script of this movie. There's no opportunity to do that because all this movie wants you to do is listen to some sad song while really dark light pours on on uh, the main character in a bedroom or a bathroom stall or wherever he might be, or um, you know, and and just cry because the song is sad. 
And that shit just pisses me off to no end. I can't stand movies that think because something sounds sad, it should be sad. You got to make me believe that it's sad through the acting, through the writing, through maybe the sound and the editing, but just, you know, using something as lazy as a, a, a pre-existing song, which obviously comes carrying certain attachments already. It just does all the work for you. And maybe again, maybe this is part of my problem as a viewer, but I feel the need to like resist that. Like when I, when I hear that and I can tell what the movie's trying to do, I, I'm, I'm just like, I back up and I just, I withdraw and I decide that that's not like, I'm not going to give in. To, I'm not going to let you do that to me. You know what I mean? Like I feel that manipulation and I really, really despise that. Yeah, and I think that's true for a lot of these kind of Oscar bait movies. Like, I feel like this movie just kind of feels like, like, oh, this is going to be a really heavy hitting story with two high profile actors. Um, for, for what it's worth, as skinny as Timothy Chalamet is, he lost 17 pounds for this movie. So, Jesus Christ, really? Yeah. So he's even, you know, more skinny. The twink boy wonder of the world. Yeah. So I, I have an interesting connection to this movie because... In high school, I was like, uh, I was addicted to meth. No, <laughs> I used to do speech. Take that meth listeners. <laughs> yeah, so I lost 70 pounds on meth. But no, I uh, I used to do speech and debate, and I did this acting event called Dramatic Such, such a different, such a different. <laughs> I did this acting event called uh, Dramatic Interpretation, and um, basically the thing with that was that you pick a book or you pick a play or you pick anything that was like written or anything like that. Um, and you kind of tell or like use it to do like a one man show. So you act out like whatever. And one of the books I'd shortlisted was beautiful boy. And I'd read it then. Um, I think it's a great memoir. Like I think the guy's name is Nick chef, right? The, yeah, um, I think you're right. Yeah. But it's, it's a really heavy hitting memoir and it's just, I don't know when something is coming from personal experience straight out of the tap unfiltered not messed with with any of hollywood's bullshit or anything like that and it just feels so real then like yeah of course it's great like you could feel like his pain while he was writing it um this movie i feel like a lot of that just initial passion i, I don't even want to call it passion because it's so sad but like i don't know that initial emotion let's say um taken out of it it feels very plastic this movie too Corey. um i know you said that you kind of felt like i don't know maybe the best way to describe it is that like emotion it's like you're watching it through like a glass ceiling like at a zoo like a glass cage where it's like the emotional event is happening and you're still on the other side of that glass where you're seeing it but you're not necessarily connecting um, yeah i like that analogy it's, it's almost as if there was like a, a zookeeper standing outside that glass cage saying like look at this look how sad it is isn't that sad isn't that sad it's, and you're and you're just not responding to that because i i, I, I felt the same way with this movie yeah dang, i definitely ahead. think like what you guys are saying with beautiful boy i feel like well, i guess i should just start over real quick so we've talked about requiem for a dream obviously a movie about addiction and we talked about how you could almost look at that like an art house film. Like they use visual storytelling to interpret interpret addiction. And I feel like if you're not going for the visual aspect of storytelling, it has to be completely through emotional connection with the characters um, and through the script. And like Corey, what you were saying about how you like using a song to interpret a sad emotion. At that point, you're just wasting like a minute and a half to three minutes to 
what you could be doing to include another emotional scene, whether it be between Timothy Chalamet and Steve Carell or whoever else. It's just you make a good point there. I I just want to add real quick. You make a really good point because this is the rare film I've seen that literally uses like the whole song. Like usually you hear a needle drop and be like, wait, but it's the full song. Exactly. Like this movie. It doesn't. I mean, it might not use the whole song, but it gets pretty damn close. Like it really uh, damn. milks these yeah. songs for all their work. So that would be that would be really obnoxious. With beautiful boy, it, it it's like there's a balance between getting an emotional response from storytelling and getting an emotional response from visuals, and it beautiful boy falls right in the middle of that. Where like it just lands flat. Like yeah. Mary, you said it, it's very much. Like you're you're watching uh, an art exhibit, go, or, or watching two animals at a zoo. Yeah. To to Samir's point, of the two movies that Corey picked, I'm Beautiful Boy. Looking through a very lackluster reviews, especially for it being like an Oscar bait type film. Right. And Grave of the Fireflies is considered. I mean, this might be a hot take, but it's considered, I in my eyes at least. A top three most loved Studio Ghibli film. I was like, I was gonna say is, like Studio I'm, Ghibli. It is like... it it is considered. I mean, maybe not like a. It, it's maybe not as well known as like the Miyazaki films, but this is one of the most prominent '90s animes ever made. Oh yeah, it's and a beloved it, film. I I mean I. It it is it's considered one of the great feats in animation. Honestly, that that like I think Beautiful Boy wouldn't be shocking that Corey dislikes this movie, mm-hmm. but but Grave of the Firefly being disliked by you is 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 frankly shocking to me because I I really do believe this is one of the best animes ever ever built. Yeah, and I, I think that's what makes it the lesser of my two evils is is the animation, which I do find very impressive, particularly considering uh, when the film came out. My thing with Grave of the Fireflies, again, is well, it's a little different, actually, because with, with this film, I actually found this to be a, more a failure of the script. I mean, this was a case where I felt like sad things were happening to these characters with no true logic or rationale behind it. I felt like the script would was like, w- like went out of its way to make its characters make irrational decisions so they would get put in the position that they were put in. There was always an obvious answer in front of you. And I'm usually not one, like usually I'm one to allow a script to play out the way that it does. Um, and then I can just, you know, and then I sort of can evaluate the film beyond that, if that makes sense. Um, but this was a, a case where I felt like this script always made the wrong decision and therefore the characters always made the wrong decision. I, And it was like just infuriating. Maybe some people find that to be like part of the whole idea or maybe some people find that to be just enjoyable um and relatable but i just thought it was like ridiculous i mean like there were just so many times where i was like all you have to do bro is just like do one chore just like one fucking chore around the house and like i promise that like you'll you'll be able to stay and you'll get fed better and it'll all be good like yeah i get you know like everyone's being kind of a dick to you but like you could really just like pick up the pick up the slack a little bit bro but instead he's like actually i'm just gonna like move out and live with my sister in a little tiny hut and um of course she's gonna starve and die because like i can't take care of her i'm, I'm also a kid so it's just like i i don't know i just found like, so you're these... mad at you're mad at the film because children made irrational decisions <laughs> like i do 
um, with a with a with a friend because like, I, I I had that thought. I was like, you know, they are children. Maybe that that justifies um, them acting ir- irrationally. But there's nothing within the script that supports that, right? If yeah. I had if I had been introduced to them as you know like playful children who already have a basis for that, like maybe I'd understand that. But the script wants you to somehow believe in this older brother character as a caretaker, as as someone heroic and someone taking on a really important challenge. And yet you're somehow supposed to just allow him to just continue to make most boneheaded decisions over and over and over and over. Yes, they're children. And that certainly like helps the the film's case a little bit, but not enough where I can forgive just how irrational it felt and how infuriating I felt as a viewer. It's been a hot second since um, I've seen this movie very much, very much so like childhood. Um, I grew up. I hope not too early in your childhood. Well, not too early, but like, you know, like still in, in the vein of like Spirited Away. I mean, Spirited Away, obviously more playful, but I, 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 I definitely, I'm sure I definitely get what you're, what you're getting at Corey with the decision-making on behalf of the story really like on a, on a logical sense, just making no sense. Um, I don't know though. Like I do also just want to lean into the fact that it can be excused because it is because they are children though. Sam, what, what are your, what are your takes? on? So Corey, my take on this movie is it really like, you can say it's a war movie. You can say it's a movie about survival, but really this movie to me is a movie about how do kids um, maintain their relationships and come to terms or lack thereof of coming to terms with their surroundings, which are how, like, how do kids maintain a childhood when the situation doesn't predicate it? I think this movie has a lot of very sweet moments where the brother is trying to teach his daughter, his daughter, his sister on how to navigate the world and what he, what she can and can't do while on the backdrop of, you know, Hiroshima, of the, you know, horrific war crimes that America did to Japan during World War II, and how they can try to, like, maintain some semblance of, like, childlike innocence, which, let's be honest, like, the childlike innocence is the reason why they both end up dying in the movie. Um, I think, I, I, I love the movie for that, that dialogue it starts, and, and, like as we talked about in Parasite, when uh, how the movie is somewhat lost in translation, how it will never be as good as if you aren't like South Korean. Like the same can definitely be said for Grave of the Fireflies. Like I think the 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 script is a little heavy handed, um, but I also think that's probably a result of a Japanese translation that we don't fully understand, so we don't get the nuances of the the dialogue between the two. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely do agree that I uh, I need to extend a little bit of you know like leeway to the film because I'll never fully grasp it the way a Japanese viewer might. But I, I don't know for considering how acclaimed the film is in all circles, I just don't see that um, as I, I just don't see it as as the as deserving of the praise that it got. I can't say I absolutely okay. despise. Film, hence the why it is why the lesser of my two evils 
but it's certainly not one that I was impressed with the way I thought I would be, considering some of the the, the praise I've seen heaped upon it. Okay, I can I can live with that. I don't I don't think it's for everyone, um, and it it definitely at at a time is just sad thing happening, sad thing happening, sad thing happening. Yeah. Um, Which again, with- I'm totally willing to admit that maybe I'm. As a viewer, eyes of viewers need to get better at like letting sad things happen and not just calling that like a bad movie. Like, yeah, maybe that is. If you're trying uh, to, if you're me, trying to find the rat, it's yeah, my my thing is if you're trying to find the rationale with people dealing with war crimes, I think you're gonna always be a little disappointed <laughs> with how they act. And um, yeah, it, it, it's and it's a, it's a time where your sense of the world is completely subverted. And especially as, you know, nine-year-old and, like, six-year-old kids, it's hard to uh, really say what we would have done in this situation. And and maybe they didn't frame. Like, your your problem with framing might be a, a legitimate gripe with it, but I remember right. it. The film is going to wrestle with those things and is going to talk about the rational nature of, of wartime and of childhood and all that. I think there could have been more of like an expression of that, either through uh, scripts or even through you know, animated films have the luxury of essentially doing whatever the fuck they want in terms of images, you know? So like give us something, some sort of like, like visualization of this struggle. I don't know. I just, just, I feel like people give this film more credit than it deserves. There's nothing within the script or nothing and nothing within the film that suggests the kinds of themes that people want to, to pull from it. Yeah. Samir, opinions? I haven't seen this movie, but based on the discussion, I do really want to watch it. I know it's been really well received, but... Um... Yeah, be curious to your thoughts, because I know, A, you're... you're um, like you, yeah, that's the other thing I know a lot of you guys probably just love anime films a lot more than, than I do, but I love all Miyazaki's films, so... Um, yeah. I, I so, do. Like, you guys, like you guys got... You guys gotta watch Perfect Blue. Like I'm truly convinced after watching it that it is that it is the best anime movie ever made. It is, it is truly like one of it. It, it might be the best animated film I've ever seen. It oh, it really is. It really was like a life changing experience watching that. Um, All right, that's good. You guys would yeah, absolutely I mean, so, love that. Yeah, I would love to hear hear your thoughts, Samir, just because um I do know that you love um not just the genre, but uh, also the, uh, I don't know, like, it, it touches on, the, the debate we're having, I feel like it touches on a lot of what you like or dislike about movies in terms of script and motivation and things like that. So, I'd be curious. Yeah. yeah Crazy we had to finish with Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, I right. think, uh, I think we, we've touched on a, a lot of, um, you know, movies throughout this discussion are there are there any other movies that you guys were tempted to pick because there is there was four or five that i was tempted to go after but i didn't know if a you guys had seen or b if i actually remembered it enough to talk about it because i mean frankly i haven't none of these films i've rewatched um because yeah, I, mean, I i don't love them um obviously because they're bad movies because you guys know I hate that movie. Yeah. Um, that's why I steered away from it. I also, for some reason, I wanted to set up like a theme of some kind. So I was toying with the idea of bringing up like biopics because I think you guys also know I despise Bohemian Rhapsody. I hate um, biopics in general. So and I was trying to think of a way to kind of start that conversation, but 
honestly, like those are so easy to hate that I, I kind of thought it'd be fun to provoke you guys a little bit more with, yeah. with creative. That's kind of what I tried to do as well, where I was like, I think this would be more fun if I picked movies where I know, you know, they're generally well received. I yes, mean, sir, you can hear with some, some burning hot takes. I mean, Lost in Translation is like, for, for our podcast dedicated to film bros, you really came at us. Yeah. I mean, hot <laughs> takes are what makes anything even fun. So we'll go around. Even worth listening to. Um, That's the back. I'll run the box is just takes now by the main critics. On there. I'll run through three movies that I was thinking of talking uh, about. I was I was gonna talk about Phantom Menace because I think mm. that is I think yeah. that is one of truly the worst movies ever made. But oh, yeah, Star Wars. So episode episode one, and I think yeah. episode two is is almost as equally as bad. I would say that I. I don't really remember much about the Phantom Menace specifically, if I'm being honest, but it's just real quick, terrible. I'll throw this out here that I think the original three episodes, meaning the ones from the early 2000s, are, as a as a trilogy, are better than the, the new three. I think the oh, last wow, really? Jedi, um, but other than that, I think the new three are fucking god-awful. I would prefer that, at least the campy nature of the of the of episodes one, two, and three. Yeah, so I I mean I'm a very like I don't think we've touched about much on this podcast but I dislike Star Wars as much as I dislike superhero movies. So it's just not the it was honestly like it would be me saying, "Hey, I don't like Star Wars." And then that would be the majority of the discussion. <laughs> other two other two movies real quick. I was going to talk about Battle Royale, the Japanese movie. That movie is that fucking movie. horrible. That movie is so fucking bad. Um I, I hate that movie with burning passion because people were when I was I was really into the Hunger Games when those books were out like there's those are still to this day Hunger Games one and two the books are the most the the my favorite books I've ever like favorite reading experiences ever like I literally read them in like two hours each and then read them like seven times Damn. at that time yeah Holy like loved loved the loved his phd in literature no i i I loved the hunger games and then every i read all these youtube comments were like if you like the hunger games you should watch the original battle royale which is way better and then i watched it and that movie is so bad it is so bad and then finally i was gonna talk about book smart oh yeah you know how i feel about that and we know we yeah so yeah and that was that was kind of where i was at was it it is a popular movie to dislike and especially as like film bros are we going to really sit there and talk about how we don't find a movie about uh puberty girl humor funny cuz it's like of course we fucking don't oh, yeah we are um, but i just cannot believe that movie is ever compared in the same light to super bad it is not even remotely as funny as engaging as heartfelt as super bad is it fails in pretty much every capacity. Oh, two other final movies. Uh, really dislike Donnie Darko. I I don't think I could ever rewatch that movie again. It is it is so whiny. I I just I just think Jake Gyllenhaal is so whiny in that movie. And then it chapter two, but we've already touched on that movie enough, and I felt like it was kind of redundant for us to shit on that movie again, even though it probably deserves it. We can make a whole podcast about that between the three of us at least 
<laughs> oh my god, I don't even know what Dane doesn't like it either. I'm pretty sure, but like us, us three actually are like the ultimate. Oh yeah, I it has to be the worst movie I've actually ever seen. I think I, that would be I worst legit, movie to see. I've like I honestly believe it's the worst movie I've ever seen. Like, and, and not like those stupid like Sharknado where it's obviously trying to be bad. But like those are those are honestly more entertaining because they are so bad. And he watched it chapter two. It's just like bad. it chapter it chapter two falls so fucking flat on its face and is so bad in every way. And honestly, I just I just want to say that that movie has not been like by most like critical discussion. People were like, it's a disappointing movie. No, it is a straight up travesty. That movie is so bad. Any so are there any other movies you guys were looking at to talk about that we didn't get a chance to? You just want to shout out as terrible movies real quick? Yeah, real quick. <laughs> okay, well again, this is this is a personal choice. Um, and again, I'm coming in maybe with the hot take, but Amelie. So this is a French movie that like I think it won like the Oscar for like. Um, yeah, I, know. I never saw it, but a- I know it. animated, right? Am I no, thinking of a different animated. one? Look it up real quick. You've definitely. Oh, it's the one with the the black the brunette with the yeah yeah yeah. yeah I know it. that movie looked weird. It's just it's a movie that a lot of girls liked, and actually, I mean, that's not fair. Like a, a lot of guys liked it too, but like I think that I don't know. For me, it just didn't do it. Like it's it's an eccentric French girl playing pranks on people for the movie. Um, obviously, that's a crude summary of it, but I feel like that's how. That was what I took away from it, even at the end of it. I didn't find it remotely enjoyable. Um, I don't know. Corey, yeah. have you seen it, Sam? Sam, you said you haven't seen it, right? No. No, I've never seen it. Corey? No yeah. motivation to see it. I um, I, I haven't seen it. I, I know of it, and I know it, it gets good reviews. It just, the, honestly, the reason I haven't watched it is because it just doesn't appeal to me. But maybe yeah. I should give it a shot. Yeah, I don't know. Um, real quick, I'll just shout out a couple of films that I thought about including because I hate them very much. Um, Bombshell, or really anything in the neighborhood of Bombshell. You guys remember that was one that came out last year about the, the Roger Fox Ailes News one? Roger Ailes oh, scandal. Yeah, yeah, I remember this movie. That, I really that's actually kind of a hot take. I think it has, yeah, it has fairly like it. good reviews. Yeah, it, yeah it's, it gets mixed reviews, but for me, I just can't stand any movie that within, the, within a year or two after an, uh, some sort of political event happening decides to... Um, just just tell that story as if it's productive or relevant or anything like that. Uh, it also, it's not an Adam McKay film, but it does kind of do the Adam McKay thing of just being like breaking the fourth wall because it's cool and just like here, here's how I'll, I'll explain politics to you because you're a layman. Which like I like Adam McKay, his movies aren't bad, but I do sort of think that uh, he's maybe kind of ruined the political genre a little bit because he's kind of created a template. Nice need to follow by making politics cool and approachable instead of just like making a good movie I, I um just, and also, i also hate gravity i really don't like gravity but i think a lot of people oh, kind of agree Corey, oh my it's, god yes, that I movie hate. is that movie is insanely boring it is actually no, I, think, I think it's one of those it's kind of like we said about bombshell i think most people agreed to hate gravity by now so i didn't really feel the need to include it yeah aged absolutely oh. horribly Wait a minute, yeah. I thought that was a, like a hot take because now that you say it, like I no. remember everyone like it won like the Oscar and like all this stuff. Like it got yeah, nominated it got nominated Best Picture in twenty fourteen. I think it won Best Picture. It won, won Best Director. Yeah, no, it, it did not win Best Picture. It won Best Director though. It's so boring. It's so, so boring. boring. 
Um, and I also thought about including almost any Tarantino film, especially The Hateful Eight, which is by, by far my least it, favorite. God awful, God awful. I think we've kind of shown on Tarantino a little bit already on this podcast. I was, I was, I was thinking about it too. I was going to include Jackie Brown because I just absolutely do not understand why people like that movie. Um, but yeah. Um, I, I also want to shout out this Korean movie called Parasite. Worst shit <laughs> in my entire life. God, oh, no, no one's seen that one, so it's not even worth. I'm just about. glad. I'm just glad that we could do an episode dedicated to to talking about why movies are bad and why we dislike movies, as opposed yeah. to like this dumb celebration of movies. Like that well, is it's really up that we did this episode, and out of the four of us, it was really just Dane who was able to be like, <laughs> "This is why I still love the movies anyway." <laughs> so expected. So expected. that was so expected. Really Dane just Dane defending the movies he said were bad. <laughs> Well, we were well, just any final love. thoughts about uh, today's episode or the twenty twenty election. You want to give any political hot takes? So this was, I think, probably our heaviest and most serious and most sad episode. And I think it's interesting because we started on the note of elections, and this is just where our mindset was at. Um, so I think, in a weird way, it is appropriate. Um, but you know, just just. There's a lot to think about here. There's some good stuff that was said. So I I personally enjoyed this episode a lot um, because I feel like it was also kind of the most personal episode where we got to, we got to yeah, learn a lot more of about the film, bro. So Yeah, I mean, I, I had a lot of fun with this episode as well. It's interesting that I think all of us probably feel a little bit nihilistic about what's going on and just not a general sense of any optimism to really take from the past two weeks or just the future proceedings with COVID but it's also fun like crazy again yeah i know Stop stay safe out. everyone <laughs> go watch tenant in the theater says Corey. um <laughs> <laughs> but it is also funny that we just shit on a bunch of nihilistic movies yeah. <laughs> while we were like <laughs> we're all fucking depressed but we were like these depressed movies are just depressed and they're never happy <laughs> yeah. even yeah. though all we talked about is how the doom and gloom of the future experience um i think i but I, movies I, as like escapism but maybe i need that more than i i'm willing to admit maybe all of us need that more than i'm willing to admit yeah. during, during some of the bullshit of not just these last four years but even the, the past couple of weeks i think we've all uh we've all felt that pressure a lot i think so agreed well this has been the lesser two evils a special episode of the don't hate us podcast I'm Corey Stillman. Alongside me is Samir, Sam, and Dane, who seems to always check out early just a little bit. Just like you can't say <laughs> goodbye. But we'll be back next week. Some, some more shenanigans. Who knows what? Uh, hopefully we'll be a little happier for you guys next time, but no promises. See everybody later.